From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom, a show about artists and cultural creators who are responding to the most pressing issues of our times. A couple months ago, I had never heard of Popel. That's on me, because as far as artists go, he's pretty famous. He's been creating work since the 70s. He's been in the Whitney Biennial twice. He's received a bunch of prestigious art awards and grants. But then all of a sudden in September, Popel was everywhere. He was creating a new collective performance piece called Conquest, which would involve dozens of volunteers crawling across Greenwich Village. He was installing a new sculptural sonic artwork at the Whitney, a piece called Choir. His work from the 80s and 90s was gonna be the focus of a show at the newly reopened MoMA. A huge deal! All three of these things were happening at once, and I was like, this is sort of embarrassing that I don't know anything about this guy or his work. I host an art show. So I googled him, and what I clicked on first was a video of him on the New York Times website. T, the New York Times style magazine, has this series they call Make Tea Something. In it, they ask creative people to make something using only scissors, tape, a copy of the New York Times, a couple other things, and one wild card item of their choice. It's a cool gimmick. Most people make polite little pieces of art. Jason Wu fashioned a dress for a doll. Tom Dixon built this modern geodesic lighting fixture. Meanwhile, in his video, Pope L turns the exercise into a performance, playing to the camera and fashioning two mittens out of newspaper. He puts them on his hands like puppets and tapes a photo of Jasper Johns from the art section over his own face. His puppet hands then proceed to have a conversation, which devolves into his yelling, New York Times, New York Times, New York Times. New York Times, 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 New York Times. Over and over, fingers waggling long after the newsprint mittens have been destroyed. That was my introduction to Pope Bell, and it was pretty apt. He's a provocateur, an instigator, a mischief maker, an interventionist. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Pope L to talk about his career, homelessness, and the high quality of New York City tap water. Thank you for joining us today, Pope L. Are we starting? We're starting. Okay. But it's chill. Okay. <laughs> um, so we have started, I guess. I guess. Welcome, Popel. Thank you. And that's what I should be calling you, right? Popel? Well, Is that what I should be calling yeah, you? Yeah, Popel's good. Okay. Yeah. Um, you're here in New York because you have three major things going on. You have two original works and one, I'm not going to call it a retrospective, one survey mm-hmm. um, at MoMA. And together, they're all called Popel, Instigation, Aspiration, Perspiration. Right. How are these three pieces all in conversation with one another? Mm-hmm. Maybe let's just talk about what they are and um, why it's significant that they're all happening at the same time. Well, I just think it's my time. <laughs> 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 now, um, it's more about what they have in common. Um, all of the works have to do with duration and time. That's been a big concern of mine for the last 30, 40 years. What is it about the idea of duration, enduring something mm-hmm. that piques your interest as an artist? You have to endure it, whether you like it or not. What if, instead of just enduring it, I decided to harness it for my own purpose? And one of the ways that you've done that... Um, is through your series of crawls. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't call them a series. I don't use that word. That's one thing after another after another. I think of it more as a set. Your latest in the set, Conquest, just took place here in New York. CC. Um, How did that go for you? Well, it was okay. Um, I wish we had had hail or lightning or flash floods. It's a bit too easy. But next time, hopefully, maybe the well, next time it'll be illegal. You hear that, New York City? Um, You're on notice. <laughs> um, the best thing about it is that um, I wasn't crawling. That was one good thing. A lot of times in these crawls that I've done in the past, the group crawls, the emphasis is too much on me. I like that. 
Um, and it also made me more available to people who came to witness the crawl that I could talk to them because usually um, I can't. You are literally crawling, you mm -hmm. or the participants of the mm -hmm. crawl. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about how the idea came to pass? Yeah, years ago, like in the 70s, um, New York was uh, not like it is now. It was less polished, less um, clean, um, less moneyed. Um, and you could see um, how did, the cracks, evidently, in terms of the number of homeless people that were on the streets. I mean, people think there are a lot now. Jesus, there was incredible numbers of folk just literally sleeping um, one after the other after the other on the sidewalks. You had to actually literally step over these people. And um, at the time, some of my own folk were on the street, you know, and and I guess it really touched me, you know, that I knew that these people were not, you know, how do you say, waste. And I decided that what if what if just suddenly somehow it happened, these folks were animated to move as once, you know, crawling, showing that sense of forward movement. And when you say some of your own folk were on the streets, do you mm. mean people who knew personally or? Yeah, you... yeah, yeah. I mean, people in my family, mm -hmm. uh, at least three at the time. Can you tell me about one of them? What do you want to know? I'm curious about um, what your relationship to one of these family members was. One of them was my brother. Another one was an aunt. Another one, you know, my father, I think, was on the street at the time. And yeah. I, I had this fear that I might meet one of them, and I didn't know what to do. And since I knew the stories of my brother, my father, uh, my aunt, I knew that it didn't take much for you to end up that way. It just takes the right things happening, the right sequence. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you wanted people who saw you crawling to know about people like your brother, your father, your aunt? No, I think that, that they don't have to see me, but they've seen others. And it's not just that crawling's about poverty. It's also about uh, the most basic will that humans have to be human, just getting out of bed. That moment when you have that choice, so you think about it. If you think about it too much, some people decide not to. So to put one arm or knee or leg after the other takes a conscious choice because you're, you're, you're moving your body against the ground and it hurts. Mm -hmm. So but, you're reminded each time you do it that you're doing it. But you're propelling yourself forward. Propelling is very elegant, but yes, you're doing something <laughs> like that. <laughs> So tell me about the very first time that you undertook a crawl. Did you warm up or were no. you like, this is the first? Well, I had done things earlier that might have. This is all hindsight. I mean, you're asking me like I knew what I was doing. I had no idea. Like I didn't know what to wear. Like what do you wear for your first crawl, your first communion, you know? So I had to figure that out. What did you wear for your very first one? Well, there were tests ones that weren't recorded. But the one, the first one recorded, I wore a suit. It had to be formal, a formal situation. I was going to work. And were you carrying something for that crawl? No, that was later. Okay. That was a bit later. That was yeah, quite a you, while later. You started imposing restrictions on yourself the more that you did yeah, of these. right. Why was that? Because I think that you've made yourself one with the dirt. And theoretically, you know, I mean, or to, I think to most people, just casually then how can you be human? So I think I decided that one thing I would do is try to care for something while I care for, about my forward movement. Such as a plant, for example? A plant, a living plant, mm -hmm. or, or sometimes just an object, because when you're crawling, you need, you need to have control of your hands. I mean, it, it, it's much easier if you can have, you can plant your palm or change the way your hands uh, deal with the ground. But if you can't, uh, it's a real problem. It takes so much more energy. It's a simple thing. So conquest, mm -hmm. you did not crawl. Nope. No crawling. You had um, you had 140 volunteers mm -hmm. who signed Actually, up. more. It was more. Came, like, more people came later. What were you looking for? How did you find these volunteers who did this well, crawl? I was working with a team and we had a plan. We wanted folks, some, each of the boroughs, 
we wanted the basic percentage of, 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 uh, of folks of uh, this persuasion or that persuasion um, of disabilities, for example. So I want to really put a special effort into places like Staten Island and the Bronx. Hi, is this Daniel? Yeah. Hi, how are you? Mackenzie? Yes, I'm well. Thanks so much for chatting with me. No, no. Thanks uh, for reaching out. How did you hear about Conquest? Were you familiar with Popel's work before? So I, I have to say that I was not uh, familiar with, with, with Popel's uh, uh, work before this, this particular event. Uh, but I do follow the, the public art fund. So when they send the, you know, the request for participants, I was interested and, and excited in, in to participate. And then I was fortunate enough that I was selected. So take me back to the crawl itself and really help me envision what it was like to be there. What did it feel like? Basically, you are giving, uh, you know, pads for your elbows and, and then you're giving this not entirely black thing to put it in, in on top of your eyes. So you was not completely blindfolded, but, you know, it was kind of like giving that sense of, of nature. Another thing is that although they provide us gloves, you were, have to hold uh, um, a flashlight. And, and of course, that also gave a little bit more of a challenging at the time of the crawling, because at least for one, like you ended up just putting your weight more on one arm than the other. Besides the pain, the, the, the sweat, the physical challenging over there, there was a really nice moment that, that struck me since I was crawling backwards, as I said. Um, so basically, uh, you know, I was constantly looking at the floor. Um, but however, the sun was coming from my um, from my back. So so basically, I could see as I was crawling, I could see my 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 shadow in the in the floor. I was just looking at that shadow all the time, and I guess he, it was it was. I would love to have a camera right there and then just taking that picture because for me, with the whole ambiance of of the people cheering and and the um, you know, the physical uh, uh, pain and, and then just seeing this calm image of the shadow in the, in the street. That was, that, was, that was phenomenal for me. And would you ever do another crawl or was once enough for you? <laughs> I guess if I, 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 I did one and then I, I did the ending, I, I, I wouldn't mind doing another one. How do people interact with you or try to interact with you when they see you doing a crawl? Some people get really pissed off. They think you've given up too much. You don't have a right to do that. You've broken this unwritten rule. Can you give me an example of a time when somebody got angry at you? When I was doing one near Tompkins um, Square, where they had previously had a riot, uh, some of the homeless folk in that park, Thompson Square Park, the year before, and it had gotten kind of out of hand. So about eight months to a year later, I did this crawl that I called Tompkins Square Crawl. And um, in that case, uh, this gentleman, he thought that I was having a problem. And he came over to help me and found out that it was an artwork, and he got really upset. Why do you think he was upset by that? I think he thought I was mocking his generosity. I mean, he, you know, he thought that having a suit on, that I should be more respectful of the fact that black folk have, you know, have made great strides to wear a suit. And this gentleman was also a person of color? Yeah. So in a way, I was betraying him without knowing it. Well, I'm curious about where you go. Spiritually? Yeah, like how do you how do you keep on going? You focus on the action, you know, and then you lose it. Like it's like a meditative practice and you can't be concerned with what could happen, like someone stepping on you or peeing on you or you know, just getting incredibly angry for for no reason, whatever. Um, you don't have the usual survival uh, situation where you're vertical and you can turn quickly and run away. You don't have that. You give that up. 
And so you have to decide each time you decide to put one elbow and the other elbow and the knee. You have to decide that, you know, I'm going to keep doing it and then keep doing it and keep doing it. The second piece that you have up in New York right now mm-hmm. is at the Whitney. Mm. What is it called? It's called Choir. Maybe you can walk me through when somebody enters the Whitney, what's the first thing that they hear? Well, they might hear. They might hear um, droplets of water as if there's the, the Whitney has sprung a leak, a serious one. But it's a pleasant leak, gentle, melodic. You round a corner and you're in a hallway at the end of which are glass double doors. There's sound coming through the doors, muffled but somehow menacing. And every time the doors swing open to disgorge a person, the din comes rushing out with them. On one of the glass doors, there's a handwritten sign that says in all caps, do not clean, sweep, mop this gallery. It is written on paper that has been torn out of a notebook, and it's affixed to the door with blue painter's tape. As you approach the doors, the cacophony grows louder and then abruptly stops. You enter the gallery. To your right is a gauzy black scrim that extends towards the back wall of the gallery. Straight ahead of you is the L of a copper pipe. You walk to the end of the scrim, and you take in the rest of the gallery. The copper pipe runs along the back wall at hip height, hooks a right into the center of the room, makes a sharp turn toward the ceiling, forming the outline of a doorway before returning to hip height and continuing on. The pipe connects to a pump and then feeds into a tank, a large white plastic cylinder that is the focal point of the space. It's big, a little taller than a porta potty and also wider. The tank is opaque, but you can see liquid inside it, Windex blue. Microphones surround the tank, contact mics affixed to its side, shotgun microphones pointing at it from several directions. Over the tank hangs a water fountain, suspended upside down. Its exterior panel has been removed and it glows with a red light from within. It's also miked. With a jolt, water starts pouring from the upside down fountain into the tank. The water churns and froths inside the cistern like shadow theater. The sound of the water, rushing, churning, bubbling, fills the room, emanating from speakers overhead. Pipes clank. Soon you start to hear voices, singing, chanting, but you can't make out the words. It's rhythmic. The soundscape builds and builds, loud and layered, and the tank fills and fills, both threaten to spill over to overwhelm the space, until suddenly, they stop. This project deals heavily with water, mm-hmm. um, as does uh, another recent project of yours, uh, the Flint Water Project. Mm-hmm. What is it about water that draws you as well, it's just fascinating i mean it's a fundamental need for human beings like like communication in a way and it's you know we are of water you know and and of course that's even more it's been dramatized by our misuse of water in the last what 50 to 100 years it just seems like it's always been something that's been a part of me i just didn't realize it mm-hmm. a lot of people uh define my work as black art you know, and I go, I have other interests, you know, I do, you know, like of the other things I'm interested in besides black people, I love black people. I think we should all like black people every day. But the other one might be water. I mean, the it's such a privilege to not have to think about no, water. That was great about living here. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I feel like you made that explicit in the Flint Water Project. Mm-hmm. Um, will you tell me briefly about about what that project was? Yes. I mean, um, I was commissioned to do a project with an art gallery in Detroit. And I thought, I want to do something that's not so much about art. I mean, maybe it is art, 
but not so directly. And then naturally Flint came up. People think that Flint's problem is it's water. Well, what if it wasn't? Or what if it was, and at the same time it wasn't? Or we could make it into a value. I said, well, how do you do that? How do you do that? And then I thought, well, why don't we sell it? People sell water all the time. It's one of the biggest industries in the last, what, 30, 40 years, selling water. Well, can't we sell this water? But, of course, you can't, you can't sell it to drink. Then you can only sell it as? A commemorative item. Art. <laughs> so, a commemorative <laughs> item. That's long. That's a commemorative long. artistic that's, that's, item. That's long. That's too long. So over the course of the project, art, you, art. you mm-hmm. filled thousands of water bottles? With yeah, Flint yes. water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But first we had to get someone to sell it to us, which actually was harder than you think. Who did you find? This young lady and her family, you know, uh, great people. Uh, they finally didn't think we were screwing around with their heads. So talk to me about this latest piece, Choir, <clears throat> and mm-hmm. about how that builds on, mm-hmm. converses with the Flint mm-hmm. Water Project. It's really a pumping system, like a circulatory system. And it uses, uh, basically, it dumps 900 gallons of water, or 800 to 900 gallons of water in about mm, 10 minutes, 8 minutes, into this large uh, cistern or plastic cistern. And this thing's expensive. And, you know, that's the thing about this kind of uh, stuff. That I've, I've avoided this kind of project for years where it t- takes so much money to make it work. And I decided to allow myself to take a stab at it, to not be afraid to, how do you say, you know, get involved in maybe processes or, or institutional uh, stuff that might be seen as indulgent because of the, the, of the need for a certain amount of wealth to make it happen. Hmm. There are artists who spend so much more on things, I know, I know, but for me, I'm saying, I have avoided this kind of thing for years. Well, it's a departure from a crawl. Anyone can can do that. Right, right. It, it's a departure from my approach to all the stuff I do. Hmm. I always try to say, well, what's the, what's the most cost-effective way, cheap? I can do the cheapest way to get this done. Why do you feel that you're in a phase where you're allowing yourself the luxury of doing pieces that maybe cost a little bit more, mm-hmm. have higher installation costs? Mm-hmm. Now, these fountains that I'm using are from this this design. It's usually from the 50s, I think. One fountain would say whites, and the other one would say coloreds. And that always stuck with me. And I wanted to find a way to sort of, uh, again, my interest in water, but my, also my interest in the historiography of race in this country, um, and sort of combine them into some dynamic object. But to make a li- something that's, that's a living thing, or that has a living thing character... You know, it just it's it's expensive to create life. You mentioned soundtrack elements Mm -hmm. in choir. So in addition to the tanks being mic'd, the sound of the Mm -hmm. water circulating, Mm -hmm. there are other sounds, voices. What are those? Well, it's called choir partly because water, I think, is very musical in and of itself. And it's very metaphorical to time and language. But I wanted to find a way to find the singing in it, or to at least to give more clues to the way I was thinking about water. So I thought, all right, I'm going to try to find choirs. And I said, well, which choirs? And there's some choirs you can find that are very, um, they're just incredibly beautiful and smooth and calming, like the Vienna Boys Choir or something like that, Um, or the Mormon Tabernacle, whatever, you know. And I didn't, I realized that, I came out of a tradition of choiring, if you want to call it, where a lot of singers were amateurs. That's where I really learned about choirs. Now, there are some great black choirs that are incredibly professional. But in the church that I came up in, you know, you, you're not sitting in the choir. You're sitting in the pew, and everybody's singing. The choir may be holding the beat or whatever, or they may be holding the theme, but everybody's singing, everyone, no matter how badly they sing. And so nine times out of ten, you're like two or three, four years old, and you have these tall people standing, and you can't see anything, and they're singing awfully. It's disgrace. I hated it. And then I loved it. 
you reached for these choral elements to layer under the sound of water. Yeah. Where right. did you... So I found from memory first, in the 1930s or so, there were these Hollywood movies and they would have, there would be about Africa. Their characters would go to Africa and they would find these black tribesmen and they would sing. And they always sounded white. And as a child, I knew there was something weird because I go to the real church, black church, and everybody would be very noisy and off key and raucous. And you go and see these movies and they're like, It's the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Yeah, yeah, you know, in the background and these black bodies, you know, they're, anyway. So I, I said, oh yeah, that, that was, and that was like this really uncanny thing. I want those guys. So I had to find those tracks. And um, so I found several of those, but then I realized it wasn't, a, it was still too smooth. And so I found some stuff in the Library of Congress, you know, like open source stuff of feel or work songs from the 30s, black work songs. And that's in there too. We were curious about these movies that Popel was talking about, and we found this clip from a 1935 film called Sanders of the River. In this song, the African-American actor Paul Robeson is wearing a leopard print loincloth, waving a spear and a shield, and this is what he sounds like. Who was this Paul Leroy Robeson? I was not aware that you had, had been singing in the Negro ch churches yes. up until recently. Yes. We have a great tradition in Negro life. All of us, Marion Anderson, Hayes, we all began in Negro churches. And my brother is pastor of a very large church in New York. And every Sunday afternoon, you may go there and hear any of the top Negro artists in the whole concert field, Warfield, anybody. This is the shaping of my views. A Negro boy born in Princeton, New Jersey, in a college town where the students mainly came from the Deep South. Paul Robeson was one of the most celebrated singers, actors of the 20th century. The son of an escaped slave, Robeson was attacked, blacklisted, hounded by the government for his political because beliefs. Because of my political views, which I certainly did not expect in a democracy, that I've been prevented from exercising my craft. However, I've kept singing all through the years. And of course, that's just the beginning of the conversation. of these films, a black actor was trapped between the expectations of white people on the one hand and the needs and the desires of uplift of blacks on the other hand. One of the problems of Robeson's film career is he's often playing magnificent or at least stunning or attractive or fascinating roles in stories that undercut the kind of heroism that he thought should reflect black people's lives. If Paul Robeson came back today, Lord have mercy, and looked around, what would he see? State Department and Department of Justice targeting him in very, very vicious ways, not just taking his passport, but ensuring that he could not economically survive. When I first went to Russia in Did 1934, in Russia, I felt for the first time like a full human being. No color prejudice like in Mississippi. No color prejudice like in Washington. It was the first time I felt like a human being. But I did not feel the pressure of color as I feel it in this committee today. Why do you not stay in Russia? Because my father was a slave. And my people died to build this country. And I'm going to stay here and have a part of it just like you and no fascist-minded people will drive me from it. Is that clear? You are here because you are promoting the communist cause. I am here because I am opposing the neo-fascist cause, which I see arising in these committees. There is no prejudice against you. Just a moment. 
This is something I challenge very deeply. I do not see success in terms of myself. I have sacrificed hundreds of thousands of dollars for what I believe in. Now I won't argue with a representative of the people who in building America wasted the lives of my people. And at the essence of careerism is what? Conformity. This brother was a nonconformist. At the essence of careerism is what? Complacency. He was courageous. Shall we talk about the MoMA? Sure. So the show is called Member, mm-hmm. Popel, 1978 to the 2001. Right. Why the name of that show and why... Why Member? Why Member? Yeah. There's a little joke in there, but there actually is a work that I made called Member. Um, and, um, and, and it was actually, it's called Member, but the first working title was Slong Journey. Slong Journey, yeah. But for the show, you know, and then I change it to member or member, a.k.a. Schlong Journey. What was that piece? Um, it, I did this on 125th Street where I made this like a contractible tube. Like you could re, you could uh, make it longer. And um, I mounted it near my waist and I had a roller at the other at one end. And so on, I went on 125th Street and I wore a suit, a different suit, a white suit, a white bluish suit. Like I was a planter, and I was going out to visit my people. Only instead of riding a horse, I'm, I have this contraption. And I'm feeling really good about myself because I have a very long, schlong instrument. And it has a wheel at the end, so I know it will always stay ready. And then, yeah, it's cardboard, but it's mine. It's my cardboard phallus. And it has like a hole in it. So every once in a while, I may feel randy, if I can use that word, on your program. You may. And I'll take an egg out of my pocket and drop it into the tube. And by scooting up slightly, the egg will tumble down. And I'm using this finger over motion, ladies and gentlemen. And then hesitate at the end because the tube has like this little imperfection and then drop and splat on the sidewalk. So you ejaculate a chicken egg. I did not use the word. (laughs) I don't know if it's a chicken's egg. It's my egg, or was my egg. And does it crack on the ground? Does it? If I do it correctly, mm. and I always did it correctly because I was in that mood. What was people's response? You were just doing this on the street. What was the response? Oh, you know, I chose the right audience. People, you know, looked. Uh, some people followed me around for the duration. Um, some people, they thought it was kind of funny. No one got mad this time. Maybe once or two people got mad because I couldn't control the phallic instrument as well as I thought. So, I'm admitting this. I've never admitted this publicly before. So sometimes it had only three wheels. So sometimes it would go off course and aim at people. And by the time I got it on course again, there might have been a calamity. Your MoMA show comes at an auspicious time Mm -hmm. for the institution. It's Mm -hmm. reopening. Mm -hmm. Um, It explicitly is saying that it wants to put more of a focus Mm -hmm. on diverse artists. Mm -hmm. They've had a period of internal reflection where they've thought about how they represented black artists, Mm -hmm. reach out to black audiences. Mm -hmm. And then also you have a piece at the Whitney, Mm -hmm. which has also undergone Mm -hmm. some real Mm -hmm. navel gazing Mm -hmm. uh, with protests Mm -hmm. and the ouster Mm -hmm. of Warren B. Canders. Mm -hmm. We're at a nexus where arts institutions are having to think about their political and social Mm -hmm. messaging. Mm -hmm. What do you think that role should be? Or do Mm -hmm. you think that they should think about it? I think a lot of this goes to, and I've been trying to get my head around, what is it we want from our institutions? And how how are we complicit in what they are already? And are we really ready for them to be our dream? For example, you know, it's like asking about your government in a way, right? Here's an institutional body that you've chosen 
to perform for you things maybe that you can't do on your own. So in a way, we are responsible for what they are. And if we have another idea about what they can be, what does it take to make that happen? And do we have the courage to do that? For example, Candor, the member on the board, decided to step down at the Whitney. I was wondering, what if he did? And people still kept dropping out. That would be interesting to me. Um, and I understand with some young black artists or, or black artists who haven't gotten certain attention that they feel, well, you're asking me to, to make myself invisible again because you think if I do this, I'm going to change something that I don't believe gets at the problem. And I could see that argument. It's almost as if the question is, do do you want to change art or do you want to change the institution? Your work responds to problems in our society. I think we can say that pretty broadly. Do you see your work as inherently political? And are there times when our political situation has seemed pretty chill Mm -hmm. that you're like, well, maybe I'll make something Mm -hmm. that is just aesthetic Mm -hmm. and not engaged Mm -hmm. with social ills around me mm-hmm. um let's see i i guess i come from that camp that believes that all art has a social connect a political connect if you will i'm interested in people whether you want to label it political or not is well it doesn't matter to me that's your problem you know i never make anything without realizing that it lives in the world like I do. So therefore, inherently, it's part of a social fabric. You ask people to meditate often on group identity mm-hmm. and belonging to a community. And you had a project called The Black Factory mm-hmm. that did that quite explicitly. Mm-hmm. Will you talk to me about what The Black Factory was? Well, you know, like I said, I'm really interested in this this energy that wants to explain or to wants to create a system of understanding by tagging things in a certain way in order to create meaning or truth. So the Black Factory, one of the interests that we had was if we we drove around the country and we met people and we talked about, you know, things like, um, what is the relationship between gender and blackness? You know, how, how does that work? And in doing that, we would try to get them to talk about these things, these gnarly things. Uh, and we would do that. We would have a table and we would, People would come and we would do demonstrations with objects. At the same time, we would ask them, do you have an object on you or that you know about? You can bring it back tomorrow, whatever, that you think represents blackness for you. It's amazing the kind of stuff that people brought us. Like what, for example? Uh, a Bill Clinton doll <laughs> one time. And what else have we got? We got like Ice, we got ice Cube. This guy is an Ice Cube that didn't. That didn't last too long. We took a photograph of everything, you know. So um, people brought in, like, Kwanzaa scarves. Some things you would more expect. But it's really interesting to see the whole, um, what would you call it, the whole archive mm-hmm. of these things. Some of them see blackness as, as, as funny. Some of them see blackness as transformational. Some of them see blackness as a kind of worship. But they're, but they're all Americans, you see. That's what's interesting. These are mostly people who consider themselves Americans. So it's an interesting kind of uh, evidence taking. Regis, I'd like to phone a friend. Hello. How are you doing? I'm I'm pretty good. Um, I wanted to ask you something related to your show. But for people who don't know your show, can you tell people about your show? Uh, Sure. Yeah. It's called Everything is Alive. And I interview inanimate objects about their lives. Well, I I wanted to talk to you because I interviewed the artist Pope L. And he was talking about a project that he did called The Black Factory, where he drove around in a truck around the country. And he asked people who identified as Black to bring in objects or possessions of theirs that 
they thought represented blackness. But I'm, it just got us thinking about how people imbue objects with meaning. I was curious about how you think about that. Like you have to choose objects to interview on your show. How do you choose what objects to talk to and like what meaning they hold culturally? One thing is when an object is by itself, it's easier to imagine it having a personality. I think because um, loneliness is (laughs) such a common human experience that if you see you know, like a coffee mug at the corner of a table by itself being untouched by people, it's easy to imagine it worrying about that. The coffee mug that nobody uses. Yeah, yeah. But I I also think that one thing that is really important for the show being believable and it feeling like these objects have a, a soul and a personality is it's very important to to us to make sure we're not thinking about every coffee mug. Um, It's when I talk to a coffee mug or whatever I talk to, um, it doesn't represent all coffee mugs in the world. It is a specific coffee mug with a specific set of experiences and relationships. So it has lived in a specific cupboard and it has had specific lips touching it. Um, Because I think, you know, when you talk to people, you want to know about their specific experiences because that's that's real. And so as we create these characters, we try to make them do the same thing, not not be representative of a group, but but be an individual. Do you guys ever disagree on that personality? Like I'm coming back to this idea that somebody brought in a Bill Clinton doll <laughs> because to them that represented blackness. And I imagine somebody else is like that that doesn't speak to me <laughs> about blackness. Like, are you ever like, here's, you're going to do this coffee mug and the performer comes back with a totally different personality for that coffee mug than you had in mind? I I think one really good example of that is I interviewed a subway seat um, who, and I think I would have imagined that to be a really miserable existence to just be constantly sat on by um, human butts. But this subway seat, Sean is his name, uh, really loves it and really feels a connection to people and honestly feels not like himself when he's not being sat on. So I think I expected him to have a very pessimistic attitude about life. And in fact, he was one of our more optimistic guests. Talking to Popel about this Black Factory also got me thinking about museums because it sort of was a museum of sorts, uh, a living museum. And I was talking to my producers and I was like, isn't it crazy that people are just bringing in objects and we're imbuing them with meaning and all of a sudden they're in a museum. And my producer was like, well, that is literally what a museum is. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like somewhere along the line, somebody has to decide this everyday object is worthy enough to be in a museum like this this pot this this drinking vessel that some ancient peoples used is now museum worthy one thing i have thought about is going to the met and um you know i'll go there when there's a specific show that i want to see and i think about all of the objects i walk past on the way to get to that show without thinking about them and these are things that are treasures of the world and um, one of a kind, significant objects. Um, and they are regularly walked by by people who don't look at them. It's so true. And that they can come into vogue at various points and then be forgotten for centuries. Yeah. But meanwhile, you have these ancient Byzantine coins that nobody cares about. If you imagine everything wants to live as long as possible. Um, those Byzantine coins may have seen that they, they as currency, they were no longer going to be used and so would be melted down into something else. If you imagine them having a personality and think about this, which, you do. And prob- <laughs> which I have to. And so they probably saw that moment in history and thought, well, that's it for us. There's no way we're going to survive. They probably never would have foreseen 
that they would be preserved in a museum and that would allow them to have eternal life. Um, but would they have wanted that? You know, their life is to be exchanged for goods and services and to be passed from hand to hand. Um, and they get to live forever, but they don't get to live forever being the thing that they want to be. So which would they choose? You know, would like, it's the same question. Would you or I want to live forever if we didn't, if that life wasn't satisfying or if that life was painful or would we rather have a brief, but um, full life? Um, so that's what's going That's what, when you walk by those Byzantine coins, that's the angst inside of them. Wow, thanks I, a fucking lot, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> that's so heavy. This is what it must be like to be cryogenically frozen, I imagine, mm -hmm. as a human. Yeah. yeah. Ian, thank you so much. Uh, the name of your show is Everything is Alive. That's and right. where can yes. people listen to it? Uh, anywhere that you get podcasts, you can also go to everythingisalive.com. Thanks so much. Bye. Did you donate an object? Yes, I did. I did, but you will never know. I won't? One. No, can't tell you. You wouldn't just, just... tell me right now? Mm-mm. Any hints? Oh. Is it larger than a bread box? Isn't it always? <laughs> Hmm. I'll dwell on that one. <laughs> you mentioned in a T magazine profile, I believe there is something aesthetic about being socially engaged, mm -hmm. being involved in your community. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that plenty of artists would say my art is political or mm -hmm. my art is socially relevant. But you're mm -hmm. sort of saying the opposite, that being political or being socially engaged is art. Is that well, I'm saying something a little less fancy pants. I'm saying that, you know, um, I believe that that kind of uh, curiosity and interest in your own community and in people, I guess it's a commonplace to say we live in a narcissistic time and we are very much interested in ourselves and uh, we are a me society. And so I think when when people... When people take the risk of caring for something other than themselves, other than their immediate surround, their family, for example, let's say, or they extend their idea of family to strangers, that's an interesting leap. And to do that with gusto and to do that with fearlessness, you know, who take that, it may not work, I'm going to do it anyway. And to have that kind of faith, I think it's just fascinating to me. That's what I mean. You have this background in experimental theater mm. and i'm curious about your early work you know your work with mabu mines you, your pieces where you're crawling through the gutter you're wearing a jock strap on a toilet you know you're now at a point in your career where no more toilet jock strap deal no i'm curious no. well i'm curious you know you have a you have a son you have a job at the university of chicago mm. you have a survey at mm. moma do you feel like you are free to take the same types of risks that you did early in your career? Or where do you find yourself today? No, I don't think that there are different kinds of risks you can take, I think, doing this piece at the Whitney and allowing myself to spend time maybe using monies that I would feel guilty about earlier and let myself learn from something like that. That's a risk you know, of a certain sort. Or allowing myself to work with a large, uncontrollable, in a way, entity like New York City. Now, I should not trust an entity that is so, in a way, conservative by its very nature. I should just try to do it on my, like, like I have been doing it. You do it on your own. You don't, you don't need permission. Why should I ask permission of these people? Who the fuck are they? But if I want to get not just this kind of people, but I want to get, you know, the kind of people I'm, like my mom, you know, who are mo who are more settled and maybe you could say more conservative. I want to get their attention and get them involved so that maybe if they're involved, they will see, oh, this is how it works. It's not what I thought it was. I might have to bend a little and I might, yeah, get that accusation that you're not you're not as adventurous as you used to be or whatever. Is it important for you that your work reach people like your mom? Yeah, it's always been that way. So I've always done public things, even if I didn't have public money. Mm -hmm. What do you hope that people 
take away mm-hmm. from your work? I mean, like, what's the message? I guess that's such a trite question. I don't know if message is the right word, is the right word. So to get to your question just about why is it important to show things to people they don't quite understand, perhaps, or um, things that might rile them up or things they might even be indifferent to, is that you're giving them um, an opportunity to, to reject it. There's nothing, rejection is a kind of, uh, it's a choice. It's also, there's an energy in that, and I think that's, that's interesting. Maybe performance art needs to get back to some of that more so. You know, like be not be as afraid to to uh, want to be fiercely public, but be aware that that's going to involve people responding to you in a way that you may not like. And that's part of it. That's your job to get in the face and then let the face come back. You know, that that's the deal. I look forward to your next illegal crawl. <laughs> that's very sweet of you. Thank you. Popel, thank you so much for joining me. You got it. Thank you, babe. And that is the show for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't subscribed already, please do that. And we'd appreciate as well if you would leave us a review or give us a star rating. That helps a lot. Glitter and Doom is made by me, Mackenzie Fagan, Ross Tuttle, Isabel Alcantara, Mira Al-Rahim, and Naeem Van. It's recorded by Eric Hagaseg, and it is executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. The T-Magazine video comes courtesy of United Labor. 